1: Hi, everyone, it's Kirby. Welcome to Los Angeles. Or should I say, Goals Angeles, if you will? All right, everyone, <laughs> thanks for humoring me. It is our Halloween episode, and I am so, so psyched. Y'all, if you are just listening into the podcast or maybe you don't follow me on social media, I am a Halloween fanatic. It is my favorite holiday. To be honest, this year, the entire year, has felt like the nightmare before Christmas. So it's been really hard getting psyched for my favorite holiday. That said, I still decorated my house. I still bought costumes. I still bought costumes for Quinn. I have been fully dressing up just to bring a little bit of happiness to the month, things are different, you know? Like normally I'd be going to Disneyland and celebrating Halloween there and Halloween horror nights and going to haunted houses with friends and having friends over for a Halloween party, kerboween Obviously things have changed. Things are a little bit different, but I still wanted to bring the Halloween joy to the podcast. So throughout this month, you've heard our new Halloween theme from Sarah's husband, Matt, who created this spooky sounding intro for us Thanks, Matt. And then, obviously, today is October 30th, the day before Halloween. I wanted to do a Halloween-themed episode, and when I was picking my brain as to who I should get as the guest, it was actually a no-brainer because this person worked on one of my favorite films of all time, Hocus Pocus. Okay, yes, Hocus Pocus is one of my favorite films. I have a Hocus Pocus poster on my wall, have a Hocus Pocus sign up in my office. I just, I love the whole movie. People talk about plot holes, people talk about things like that. I don't wanna hear any of it. If you grew up watching the 1993 classic, chances are it holds a very special place in your heart. Thank God we have Freeform because they play it all month long and all day on Halloween. And it's just one of those feel good movies. You know, from, you know, the talking cat. Nice going, Max. To Winifred's performance of I Put a Spell on You, which by the way, Disney, I know that there's licensing and rights and things like that that you have to get, but it's really a shame that that single is not available on like Apple or Spotify or something. Anyways. I have Tony Gardner as the guest on today's show, and he is the man behind the special effects makeup for Billy Butcherson and the animatronic puppet Binks.
0: And Binks thou Still alive?
1: Tony is a special effects makeup artist and puppeteer, and his career is what truly movies are made of. He's going to outline his first experience on set, which is nothing short of iconic. His career in makeup has spanned literal decades, and he's known for some of the most creative, eccentric, cool work on films, series, music videos, projects like Zombieland, Bad Grandpa, 127 Hours, Hairspray, *Sasha Baron Cohen's Who is America. He's transformed stars like John Travolta and Gwyneth Paltrow and Katy Perry. He is responsible for Daft Punk's incredible helmets. Hello, that's iconic in itself. And he joins me today because of his work on some fabulous Halloween films from the Addams Family, to the Craft, to the Blob, to the Chucky series, and of course, Hocus Pocus. And really that's barely even scratching the surface on his resume. I've already name dropped so many different films and shows that he's been a part of, but seriously, he's done anything that you can think of when it comes to special effects makeup. Today he's talking about getting a job offer from legendary special effects makeup artist Rick Baker, which totally changed the course of his career, how he dropped out of school to follow his dreams. I'm sure not a popular choice with parents that may be listening, but it worked out for him. He's gonna debunk some myths about Hocus Pocus, talk about the makeup and the filming process for both Binks and Billy, and then he even offers a preview of what to expect from Hulaween. So Hulaween is something that Bedman Midler throws every year. And she is putting on the show tonight, which is actually like a little mini hocus pocus reunion. And it's for the New York Restoration Project. So it's for a good cause. You can get tickets. There, they're literally like a limited amount of tickets available because it's on Zoom. And I cannot wait. I believe it's on at 5 or 5:30 5 p.m. Pacific or 8 or 8:30 8 p.m. Eastern. Anyway, all of the details on Tony, his company Alterion, and Hulaween will be available on our website for you to check out. And and be sure to head to our Instagram so you can see some of the cool behind the scene pics that Tony has taken on set. If you are a cinephile or just a Halloween fanatic, you're going to love this episode. Be sure to follow us on social at Los Angeles Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Join our Facebook group, which just search Los Angeles. And find us on our website, losangelespod.com. Enjoy the full moon, stay safe, and happy Halloween. Hi, Tony. Welcome to Los Angeles.
2: Hi, Kirby. Thanks for having me.
1: As I said in my intro, I'm geeking out. I'm a fangirl. I'm so excited I finally got you. Feels like I've been searching over the span of my career to get you for an interview, and now here we are. So via Zoom, no less.
2: Yeah, that's pretty funny, huh?
1: (laughs) Your career is incredible, and your first... I and correct me if I'm wrong, your first experience on set was Michael Jackson's Thriller, correct?
2: Yes, I, I had done like a puppet for someone else prior to that, but my first true set experience was um, was Thriller. It was my first shop experience, too, for um, in regards to working in makeup effects. It was like everything all at once from every direction, and it was such a short time period, start to finish, that, I mean, every aspect of production Uh, was part of the experience which made it really cool for me.
1: And you had you dropped out of school right?
2: Yes Um, (laughs) I went to Ohio University as a theater major wanted to do film they didn't really have anything so I transferred to USC and I was accepted as an art major and they said I could reapply to the film school the following year because it was a two-year program. Well in that year of art stuff. I turned every class into independent study and I got involved with all the film students and just sort of got it out there that if you needed um, makeup or weird kind of stuff in your student films, I'd be more than happy to do it. Figuring I'd be learning more about the um the filmmaking aspect of the school at the same time. And I I built a decent body of work and and used a paper at school to to meet Rick Baker and Carlo Rambaldi and Steven Spielberg. And um, I think when you're a student, you can, it's a lot easier to walk in a door. And um, I had an opportunity to show my work to Rick. And uh, he called me back uh, when the school year was starting and offered me a job. And I was like, do I take the job or do I go back to school? And I figured I could always go back to school. So let's do the, the four week job. And then the four weeks on thriller turned into almost eight. And I ended up working for him for four years. So it turned into the best school you could ask for
1: the real life experience. What I found really funny was that Rick called you and said, Hey, we have this one guy that's working on this project. But if you want it, let us know. And you were like, yeah, I'll be on the next plane out.
2: Yeah, I was I was actually back in Ohio for a week, and I'd only been there for like two days. And he called and um, said that he had somebody holding my spot if I wanted this job. He said it's only four weeks, but I know you're kind of all over the place, and you like film and music and makeup and effects. And at the end of four weeks, maybe at least you'll know if this is what you want to do or not. I thought that was very nice of him and very generous. And I was like, yeah, I'll... I'll definitely do it. When does it start? And he said, well, we just started. And there's somebody holding your spot. If you want it, it's yours. If not, we'll keep this guy here. And I um, immediately called the airlines and and figured out a plane flight out the next morning. And that was it. But I didn't have a car. I had no plan. I just was like, I'm going. Um, I'm going back and I'll figure it out. I guess it worked out okay.
1: It definitely worked out, and just to your point of being a student, you know, like you don't have a family that you're worrying about. You don't have all these other, you know, responsibilities. So yeah, okay. Yeah. You don't have a car. You don't have a place to live. You don't have any of these things. That's totally fine. You can figure those things out.
2: It was funny because I actually um, I didn't tell the school that I dropped out. <laughs> um, I was a I was a drummer in the in the USC marching band, and I didn't tell them either. And I I made a deal with Rick since most of sectionals were in the evenings and the games were on the weekends. Um I asked if I could continue doing it. So I dropped out of my classes. I stayed in band. I stayed in the frat house that I was living <laughs> in. Um and then started working. And the hours for work, I, I mean at first I I was trying to do both. Yeah. You know, and the hours for thriller were just insane there was so much stuff to build I was like i I can't do both I have to I have to walk away from the one because I, I naively thought you know I'd do all my schoolwork at night and uh, do the job during the day and then the the hours for work just sort of took over most of the twenty four hours that are in a day and I would much rather do that so I, I opted out of my classes my Parents were not happy. Um, We'd already paid for the year and I'd already started the year. And here I was not more than two weeks into it saying I'm out. Um, But they're very understanding and very patient, I guess, really more than anything.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, like, how many children do you have? I have three. Three. Okay, so I know one of your uh, daughters is a filmmaker. What would you have said to her had she said, "Uh, all right, I'm going to peace out.
2: Oh, we had this conversation so many times over the four years that she was in school. I mean, the example that I set was really bad.
1: I actually found her via TikTok. Uh, Shout out to TikTok, bringing the world together. She has an amazing compilation of content. um, And a lot of it has to do with you. And it's really interesting because right now, especially because it's October and Halloween is really obviously like front of mind, Hocus Pocus of course is huge right um there are so many right. like hocus pocus facts going around on TikTok, right and i love that she kind of in a, the most polite respectful way has kind of debunked a lot of these these quote unquote facts is there a, a
2: like the house one
1: yes do you want to tell everyone? yeah she was
2: so mad she's like i keep trying to tell these people nicely that they have it wrong and nobody is listening. And, and I don't want other people to be misled and these poor people that live in this house in California to, to have visitors at like 3 a.m. on Halloween night. Totally. William Sandell, actually, the production designer, literally posted on Instagram. Shout out to Instagram. Yes. Uh, he posted a bunch of photos of the uh, the build of the house and the graveyard set on the this. St- at the studio at Disney uh, on the soundstage. It's obvious that it doesn't exist in real life, you know, because the production designer is showing you photos. And he just posted those, I think, yesterday. So I'm sure you'll see that pop up on curious TikTok or somewhere so that she can continue with her mission to save this poor family from having visitors that don't need to be bothering them.
1: So for those of you that are not familiar, there is a house in Beverly Hills. I once did a Beverly Hills walking tour um, with my friend, Larry. Shout out to Larry. (laughs) I love that we're shouting out all these people. (laughs) But Larry um, took me to this house, and it's a witch's house. It's, It's actually a set. Oh, it is. It is. It was moved. Oh, I didn't know that. So it is a set house. It was moved, I think, from the Sony lot to this beautiful neighborhood in Beverly Hills it looks like Hansel and Gretel's house. Um, I should probably do a little bit more digging to figure out what set it was and stuff like that, but it's incredible. But on TikTok, y'all, everyone's going around like yeah this house in beverly hills it's the hocus pocus house well first of all if you're a diehard hocus pocus fan you know that's not the hocus pocus house it doesn't look anything like it
2: no water wheel
1: no water wheel none of that um but tony's daughter like has been debunking all of these myths that are circulating on conspiracy theory hocus pocus tiktok and i absolutely love it and that's actually how i was able to get in touch with tony by his daughter so kind of incredible and i'm going to link to uh to the Instagram post that Tony's talking about with the set designer because the Hocus Pocus set, like he said, the witch's house, the road, all of that stuff, the water wheel, all built on a set. And then things like Max's house and, you know, the um, town hall and things like that. Those are in Salem. I visited those locations last year. They're pretty incredible and really fun to see. Tony, I want to go back just to Thriller because I think Thriller... For a lot of people, they know this as like the music video. Right. Like this is what revolutionized music videos from just being somebody like standing and, and singing along to their song.
2: It had a story. It
1: had a story. Um, I love at the beginning that Michael's like, due to my personal convictions, I don't believe in the occult. Like this is just this is just a music video.
2: That came that came way later. That wasn't part of the original plan.
1: And you were in the video. Right. Think about this. How old were you, Tony? Like 21?
2: I was 18. You're
1: a baby, a, ch- a child. I was
2: literally like been in California for about a year and I was 18.
1: You are the first person to come out of a grave, the first zombie to come out of a grave, right?
2: Right. Yeah. If you, if you watch the making of, uh, they actually show the scene where Michael and Ola Ray sort of skip past the graveyard and the camera pushes in on the very first gravestone and some hands come out. They show the footage and then they show behind the scenes and they show John Landis saying, come on out, Tony, come on out. And he's directing me. And then um, it cuts to something else. But it's funny because there's the name recognition in in the behind the scenes thing, which makes it even more fun to look back on now for me, obviously. But I'm in there all over the place. My arm falls out, falls off. I. I, my face is in the dance scene. I can't dance. and and But all I think I had to do was slap my butt and look over my shoulder. And I, I was like, well, I can do that. Um, and I'm just in some little montage of four faces. My arm falls off. I'm in the theater scene as myself. I'm three rows behind Michael. Um, and that was just John Landis saying, hey, if any of you guys want to be in the video, we need bodies to fill the theater scene. and. We genuinely didn't know what this was going to be or become, but it was fun. The whole experience was like a week's worth of shooting in different locations and trailers parked on the street and police, you know, barricades at the end of streets and them wetting down the roads with um, water trucks prior to the shots and giant fog machines and fans. It was like every film kid, geeks, you know, dream experience. So um, I was in heaven, you know, for for a solid week there. And then after shooting was over, uh, John Landis knew I was interested in filmmaking. So he invited me to come watch them edit it, which was really super generous of him as well. And I I just learned so much on that. I was, I, was, I had complete conviction in not going back to school after the whole experience because I felt like I'd, learn more. And I probably would have, you know, at school in that same amount of time.
1: Yep. You got the real life experience.
2: Yeah. And everybody was so nice and and welcoming and kind.
1: I want to read a quote that you have given about Hocus Pocus. You said that you had a weird meeting for Hocus Pocus and that somebody said, we need you to design a 300-year-old zombie with his mouth stitched, set, stitched shut, his fingers to be sliced off, his head to knock off. And oh, by the way, we need a cat to get run over by a bus and then reinflate. And oh, yeah, this is a Disney film. It has to be kid-friendly. So,
2: Yep, those are my words. Oh,
1: <laughs> getting a, a note like that, who are you hearing that from? A. And then B, when you were first positioned to take on Hocus Pocus – what was the idea behind Billy? Because you worked specifically on Binks and Billy, and I've always thought, was Billy did Billy look the same from start to finish? Like the idea of Billy?
2: No, no, I have designs still, or copies of the designs that we sent in. Actually, when I had the very first meeting with them, it was with the producers, you know, at Disney, talking about the project and and what they needed. They're reading me this laundry list of stuff that just classic. Horror movie gore, and then telling me that it needs to be kid friendly and it's going to be a Disney film. At the time, too, um, it, I think the plan was for it to actually be on the Disney Channel and not even have a theatrical release. I think they were debating that still when when they were meeting with me. That was a challenge that was interesting, obviously. So I, I you know, my interest was piqued, obviously. And then, as far as the second half of your question, there was no design for the character at all. The the wardrobe designer Mary Vogt, had done some wardrobe sketches where she had drawn some heads on them, but they were more like like withered, older people, like character faces, like heavier set, and stuff like that. When they started talking to me about the movie and and this character, my immediate thought was Ichabod Crane, tall, skinny, gangly, big Adam's apple, sort of dorky, goofy guy, that dressed in period clothing, and and that's where my mind went. And then I saw Mary's designs, and she was doing period clothing as well. And she was experimenting at one point with, in the very beginning, some of her sketches had like epaulettes and a more military feel to his coat than, than what he ended up in, um, which made it really interesting, I thought. But I just, I just sort of took the Ichabod Crane idea and the disheveled hair and the long ponytail and and really ran more with that. Um, I felt I could relate to it personally <laughs> as well. It, it seemed familiar territory. Uh, then the question was, um, how do we get somebody skinny enough to make it look like this guy's really dried out and really a dried husk basically so that when A head gets broken off or fingers get sliced by a manhole cover or whatever is happening. It's dry on the inside and it looks brittle and it looks like um, something that could break apart as opposed to something that would be gory. And I felt like whatever was dried out to the point where it could break like that would also be super skinny, almost like a mummy. I had seen the Mac Tonight commercials that were airing at the time with this big moon face guy. It was this tall, skinny body, and it had this giant moon head on him with a big smile on it. And I remember thinking, I know that guy's not smiling underneath that because that head's got away a lot. But, oh, my God, he is so good at making it look like he's having fun and making that character energized and lively and just making it alive. It's like if we could get somebody like that, it would be amazing. So I figured I must know somebody that knows the guy that built this Moonhead, So I started asking around. And it turned out that uh, a guy named Steve Neal had built it and he had a head cast of the actor that he had built it on behind his garage, like out in the weather, rained on, stained, just a mess. I asked him if I could, I went over and I asked if I could borrow it. And he said, yes. So the very first sculptures for the character, the very first designs that were done three-dimensionally were actually done on Doug Jones's life cast.
1: Wow.
2: So to, to me, he was Billy Butcherson from the very beginning. Totally. And the, I have pictures of the, the original sculpture. I only have one photo of it, but it's very much how he ended up. I mean, Doug had such a great face to work with. I told them, if you want this face, you have to use this actor. There's no way we could, we could recreate this on, on somebody with a bigger face. We'd already been down that road on Darkman with Liam Neeson they hunted him down and, and they auditioned him. And, and he's just the nicest, most brilliant person to begin with. And he nailed the audition and, and they, I don't think he even made it home before they told him he had the part, but our, our designs prior to that, our, our illustrations started with the idea of a, a, a almost like a shrunken head sort of tight, um, leathery skin with the mouth stitched shut like a shrunken head really and then it sort of tangented out from that and we did all sorts of variations but every time we drew it his hair kept getting a little bit bigger I think (laughs) and in the end one of the final designs which I think is on our website actually it's just a pencil sketch but it has him in one of the jackets with the the you know the military shoulders and the epaulettes Sort of military-looking with the the big loose hair in front of his face, and it was like, oh my gosh, it's Michael Jackson, you know. And sometimes people still actually say that they'll say it's Michael Jackson or it's Johnny Depp, a vibe. And I I think it's very interesting that they're comparing him to someone they find attractive. It was always interesting that we were building a three hundred-year-old guy and all the comparisons to what he looked like were were popular, popular guys, you know, and I think Doug got a big kick out of that too. And I think as, as time has gone on, both he and I hear quite frequently that Billy Butcherson was someone's first crush as a little kid growing up, you know, I think he still gets a kick out of the fact that he was a sexy zombie and, and he was somebody's first crush.
1: Well, that's the thing about Billy but- Butcherson that I wanted to bring up is that he had to be attractive because both Winifred and Sarah right. were, yeah. you know, entangled with him. He's he's not faithful. Nope. And nope. you had to believe that he was, you know, a prize to be sought after by these witches. And, you know, if he would have had a shrunken head, I don't think that people would have <laughs> put two and two together. You know what I mean? But like yeah. with the hair and the clothing and especially Doug's eyes and, yeah. you know, the way that... He carries himself. I think that that kind of brings it all together. So it's believable. Okay, obviously, Sarah and Winnie were going after this man. He was a ladies' man. It makes sense.
2: Yeah, we did, it. <laughs> we did the very first makeup test on the, the lot at Disney. And we tested the cats and a whole bunch of stuff. And um, we did Doug. And his hair was too, like, poofy. It didn't have enough form and, and, and finesse to it. And the ringing around his eyes was a little too dark. And we experimented with contact lenses to make him look more like he'd been dead for 300 years. Mm -hmm. And we learned immediately that if we use Doug's eyes, Doug's so expressive and his eyes are, you know, the eyes are the window to the soul. This is a very gentle, kind, loving soul. And you could see it in his face, even with all that makeup on. And then taking the rings around the eyes, lessening that sort of depth and shadow made him his eyes even a little more accessible. And then we were almost doing like sort of like a beauty makeup almost on the eyes, just because they're, they're buried in these deep brown areas anyhow. And then his face is so angular, it's just like everything suddenly started to really come together. And once a lot more of the hair was pulled back tighter on the back of the head, we found a nice balance the, for the look, I have to say the wardrobe, especially just redoing the character right now and reusing the original wardrobe, I had forgotten how beautiful it was, but I'd also forgotten how well it moved with him and and how soft and and how she'd done the tattered sleeves hanging out of the jacket that when he moved his arms, they there was a follow through of the movement. I think we it, it was just the perfect meeting of actor, makeup, hair, wardrobe, everything, in, in a project where he's presented as the ex-love interest. Just so much fun and so different from anything that any of us had done before.
1: Um, how long did it take the makeup?
2: Uh, Margaret Prentice and I did his makeup every day. I, I wanted it to look seamless and not have, usually makeup's done in pieces where you'd have a face piece and a neck piece that are separate. And the face could even be broken up into smaller sections so that you get the glue down of it accurate as far as placement. And I, and I wanted it to be really thin. And I wanted lines from design lines, basically, uh, from the weathering of his skin to go from his neck onto his face. So I decided to do it all as one big giant piece of foam that was glued down. But it, it's super unwieldy as a result Mm. because it's thin and it's it's soft it's very flexible and it covers his whole face so it's like you have to tip him back in order to do it because you need to use gravity as your friend in order to to line it up but even doing all that for one person to do it it would it would take over two hours easy easy like two and a half was how long it took when we when we just redid it because i had to do it by myself because of covid when we did the film it was Margaret Prentice and I and we sort of divided it down the middle and once we had the nose and a line on the forehead glued down, we would each work on the side our side of his head and glue down from that point all the way back to his ears and then finish the blending and then do the coloring. And that that would take us well, even putting the wig on and the gloves on, that would still be maybe an hour and a half max to to do him from start to finish.
1: I read, and I I know this, so Billy wasn't a Billy. Doug wasn't the only person to play Billy. Right. Because his head has to be
2: his head has to come off and the concept of digital effects didn't really exist
1: so there was a i love this photo which i will include on the website but there's a photo of what is the actress's name
2: her name is karen malchus
1: she played the lower half of of billy's body
2: (laughs) and she was amazing yeah she's she's basically his entire body minus the head with the cut off at the the neck and karen's five, four, uh, and Doug's six, three. So there's literally that foot. They almost lined up. You know, it's just the joints of the body didn't line up. So I had to build her shoulders a foot higher to bury her head. And then we had to build arms, fake arms that fit the top half of the sleeve that connected to her real arms uh, from the elbow down. And then the jacket was redesigned so that the armpit areas had a lot more width to it. It was more of a batwing kind of thing. Uh-huh. So that Karen's arms could fit through that jacket and she could move around and do stuff and it would look proportionate. And then Karen wore these sort of boots or shin guards that, that actually had kneecaps on them that were extended up, I don't know, maybe four or five inches higher than hers. So that when the pants bent, you know, when he was running, the knee was where it was supposed to be. So, so that cool. you could cut from proportionately accurate Doug Jones to proportionally accurate headless Doug Jones and have it work. But that meant Karen's eyes, I, you know, it was a really tight fit. Karen's eyes are in that the, the neck of the shirt has a lot of, like, sort of almost like netting Yeah, to it, like a crocheted sort of like neck wrap. Her eyes are literally right behind that. Her, she's, her face is painted black so you don't see it because she's looking through that netting and she's wearing a skull cap that has the top of, the, the top of it is literally the stump of Doug's neck. Uh, and the collar was high, so that went around, basically around almost at eye level to her. She's sort of peeking out of uh, his, almost his Adam's apple area. And, and then the, the neck stump that she wore on the top of her head had magnets hidden inside the sculpted texture of the interior of his severed neck. And then the fake head had magnets that lined up with that. So she could wear that head with the wig and everything on it. And it, they were strong enough where it stayed. But if you smacked it, you could knock the head off really easily. And she wore the same gloves that he wore. So the hands were an exact match, too. And the same, the same duplicates of the shoes he's got toes that stick out of one shoe there's a hole in it and we just duplicated his wardrobe for karen then they spent time sort of practicing together there's actually if people look for it i've finally just bought it online there's a blu-ray special edition from the 25th anniversary that has behind the scenes footage in it it even shows karen malchus getting suited up and saying to the camera, see on set, and her face is sticking out of this <laughs> opening because the shirt's open at the top, you know. Um, just, it's Hilarious. got some really great stuff on it. So I know somewhere there's, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes footage.
1: So my boyfriend's 6'4", I'm five four.
2: Oh, perfect.
1: Next year, we've got our costumes. You can,
2: you can be headless him. Yes, yeah,
1: exactly. Definitely. It's going to work. Okay, so I do have to talk about Binks because you worked on our precious... Thackeray Binks as a cat. How many Binkses actually existed? There was one real cat, right?
2: Oh, there were multiple real cats.
1: Okay, multiple real cats. So
2: I want to say (laughs) twenty.
1: Just herding cats.
2: Each one could do like a very specific thing incredibly well, and some of them could do multiple things, but each one had a a, their cats. They had a tolerance level for what they were doing. Totally. You know. Yep. And with a cat, there's no way to reason. You know, come on, one more time. It's like yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's go get Georgia and put her in and use her for this next take. But um, Gary Giroux, the guy who trained all the animals, and, and Larry Madrid, the guy who worked closely with the cats, had these cats train so well. Larry had one of the cats sitting on the street when the bus is pulling up to, to, to run it over.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And the stunt driver of the bus had a mark where to stop and it, there was a clearance of, I don't know, still like three feet almost to the real cat. Yeah, um, And the real cat is just sitting in the road and it's trained and obviously if something's coming at it and it it feels danger, it's gonna move. Their cats were so well-trained and felt so comfortable and everything. The cat sat there facing the bus the entire time, <gasps> pulled up and like uh, did its little screech to the stop thing and the cat sat there looked at it and then turned and then walked away (laughs) and we were all like there is no reason for us to be here this animal trainer is amazing
1: that's incredible
2: and it was true I mean there were so many things that it could do that the real cats were able to do that that negated what we were doing our animatronic ones are used sometimes like sitting on one of the the actors and the cameras over the cat's shoulder while he's the cat's talking to him stuff where maybe the tolerance level of a real cat wouldn't, wouldn't last as long, but we could get the head at a specific angle and, and have the ears move or the tail move or something like that to, to put life into it. But the, the real, our cat was for more of the stationary stuff. Okay. Sitting in the street, sitting on someone, sitting on a branch in a tree, sitting in front of a gravestone, you know, and then this was the advent of digital technology the start of all of it was the Terminator model and then Binx's face. Uh, a company called Rhythm and Hughes did a little computer rendering of his face, which was amazing because the cat's solid black. So it offered them so much freedom to figure out placement and be able to like make it work. It worked so well. There are a lot of times where it's the animatronic cat with the digital face. It's the real cat with the digital face, but Anytime a cat's being harmed or on somebody's back or being thrown or being run over or re-inflating, we had multiples of, of those things. You know, We had a positionable one that was the stand-in for Binks so that they didn't have to make a real cat hang out just to figure out the lighting. And that was positionable. Then we had a hero positionable, an inflatable, um, a floppy cat. Uh, a posable stunt cat that you could throw like off your back or whatever. And then we had that the animatronic cat. And those were all life-size cats. Then we built an oversized head of a cat that was probably two and a half feet wide. The eyeballs themselves were probably eight inches across. It was, it was massive. It was designed as a costume someone could fit in. And you wore this cat head above your own and your face was in the neck, sort of like Karen Malchus's Headless Billy. And you had arm extensions for your arms to be cat proportionate. And we were filming tests with forced perspective where we had somebody in the shop like leaning down, facing camera, talking to the cat, sort of a little off to the side of it. And then we had the cat looking up at them and reacting and using its hands to gesture like a, a person would. And it was, it was pretty amazing basically what they did on Lord of the Rings to make everybody look tiny, where it was all in, we were doing in-camera stuff. And we took that to the Billy Butcherson makeup test to show everybody. And we didn't have the ears at the time for it. So we cut some ears out of cardboard. So at least you had a silhouette. It's like, here's the shape. Just pay attention to the, to the eyes and the way the head moves and the way the body moves. Um, and we're still finessing the details and there's no whiskers on it either. Well, there are a couple of people who watched it who couldn't get past that. They're like, those ears don't look real. They look like cardboard. It's like, they are cardboard.
1: You're like, well, yeah.
2: (laughs) It's cardboard so that you can see where the ears will be when they're done. You're looking at this early. And there were people that couldn't visualize it. It completed. So it um, it got axed before it was done. But if I look hard enough, I'm sure I could find some of the video footage. I think part of... The, the getting rid of it had to do with the fact that it was developed too to to gesture like a person would. the idea being originally that Binks could go up on his haunches and use his hands to talk like i'm doing right now, uh, whether I, you can see me or not. We did the animatronic cat with the same the, the same mechanical design there was there were rotations to the wrists and 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 the shoulders could move like a person's. The cats are locked off and the arms are really straight in front of them. There's no rotation to the wrist at all. When we did our first test with the animatronic life-size cat, we had it talking and using its hands to talk. And it freaked people out. They're like, they're like, that's just like wrong. It's not a cat anymore. It's this thing. We want it to be a cat. So, we locked off all the mechanics so that it could only move within the, the radiuses of a, of a real cat's range of motion. And they got really happy about about it at that point. But the, the bigger one was designed for close up stuff of, of talking and um, it, it being bigger so that the camera could be close to it and you could see all the detail and it would look good as opposed to um, do, zooming in for a close up of a life sized fake head. And having it start to not look so real. That's where the digital stuff started to come into play as well. So that that oversized cat died his horrible death and, and went away Aww. to never be seen again. And then it was all life-size stuff. And after doing the show, it's so much easier to pull in a life-size. Because we've actually done this gag since with Akshan Karen Malkus uh, for the Easter Bunny and stuff with an oversized head comped onto a smaller body and stuff like that. And wheeling out a little one and bringing in a big big one and adjusting the camera height to compensate and moving the lights, adjusting minorly with the lights for eye eye light. Um, It's like we would have added days to the shoot. So I, I get their wisdom now, but at the time it was like, oh, the oversized cat's gone.
1: For those of you that may not know, the actor that played the human Thackeray Binks did not voice The cat, Thackeray Binks. Jason Marsden, who, if you grew up watching Disney Channel, was on the Torkelsons. He's the voice of Max Goof. Oh, right. Goofy's son. Goofy movie. All that good stuff. So he is the voice of of Binks. This is me just being green and never having been on a film set before, Tony. When you have a character like Binks who is saying dialogue in conjunction with the other actors on set who's reading Binks's dialogue because surely they're not bringing i mean maybe i'm wrong are they bringing Jason in to read his lines on oh, set no, okay no. so then what like who's reading Binks's lines
2: well a, a lot of times it would be the director Kenny Ortega okay or the script supervisor whose name i can't remember um, would read the lines uh, a majority of the time as well. There weren't very many shots where Binx is in with another person.
1: Okay,
2: yeah. Where you need to see the dialogue w- alongside other actors. A lot of Binks talking is like an isolated shot of just the cat. So it was really more about the, like Larry Madrid or Gary Giroux, the animal trainers talking to the cat to get him to hit a certain pose or hold a certain position. Or, or swat at, at something, and then with the knowledge that him swatting forward is gonna have the dialogue, close the book on top of it. Um, but there was no need for any of the other actors to be there. Got it. Um, and then we didn't really interact with any of the people from the past, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Salem prior to modern day. We had nothing to do with any of that. We had done some designs for the witches with their their old versions. And we had done some demonic ones and we'd done some really hideous ones. They they chose not to go with anything that was too extreme. They wanted everybody still to be recognizable and and less is more sort of mindset. There are a couple things like that where the original script being a lot darker than the finished film had things that offered interesting makeup opportunities that ended up not happening. like when, when Ice and the other kid are put into the little cages by the witches <laughs> and, and left hanging, the witches were going to be sort of draining their life force and they were going to turn into old men, and be old men in the cages. And that whole aspect is completely gone, but we had done designs based on you know progressive age makeup of each one of those guys to, to show what they'd look like in the cage. Um, I've got a stack of those and Witch Designs and, and Billy Designs. And they're all – it's funny because they were all done in pencil and pen and colored pencil because there wasn't much else to work with way back when. <laughs> 1992,
1: 1993. Yeah. You mentioned this earlier, but you brought Billy back to life in 2020. Oh, yeah. So for those of you – who are not Hocus Pocus super fans? Bette Midler brought the witches back together, brought a lot of the cast back together, including Billy, um, to benefit the New York Restoration right. Project,
2: which is all about green space in New York.
1: Yes, and so I think there's still tickets available.
2: There, there are literally millions of tickets available. It's a yeah. It's an online event. Yep. So the audience is is unlimited. On the thirtieth at. Five o'clock Pacific time, eight o'clock Eastern time. It started out, I think, as something small. Bette Midler does this Halloween charity event every year, and she had to do it online this year. And she usually does one song in as uh, Winifred Sanderson for that. And then this, uh, she had an idea, and it just grew into something amazing and and really cool, where she's like. Let's do it as a documentary sort of thing in search of the Sanderson sisters. Let's bring back the Sanderson sisters. Let's bring back Billy. Let's let's bring back other celebrities and singers, and let's make an event out of this. And she's got a whole show put together now that's hosted by Elvira, and we shot part of it in our shop uh, here. Actually, we shot to the set segments. And my daughter, Kira, she directed those along with uh, uh, Sean Farmer, who was the lady that was sort of like pulling all the pieces together for BET here on the West Coast. It, they've got so much stuff going on in this now. It's amazing. And it's, it's kind of mind blowing because it's literally a live event and it's never going to come back. It was done for charity. So usually when you work and do something for charity, people you can get suddenly Meryl Streep and Billy Crystal and Jennifer Hudson to be on it. Because it's it's a charity event. They're not giving you the right to market them and make money off them for eternity. They're helping you raise money for a great cause. So Meryl Streep and Billy Crystal and John Stamos and Jennifer Hudson, all these people are actually in the show. Elvira, Toddra Hall. and then then you've got the cast too. You've got you've got Doug, the three witches, then you also have Omri Katz and and uh, Vanessa Shaw and Danny, who I just want to call Danny all of a sudden.
1: <laughs> Thora, Thora Birch. <laughs>
2: Thora Birch, yeah. Um, as, them, as their characters grown up. And it's interesting because there's been talk of a sequel for literally decades at this point, And there've been meetings and scripts and all sorts of things that have gone down in, in those decades. Progress has been very slow moving for whatever reason. And then this this charity event idea comes together and suddenly you've got everybody saying, I'd love to do it. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes over with people. I think it will help influence whether or not there's a sequel because they're, they're you know, all the powers that be will see what sort of interest there really is in these characters.
1: That's the rumor though. So like if you Google Hocus Pocus sequel right now.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, oh no. I just wanna say it's been a rumor for 15 years. And now there's finally a director attached to it. Uh, Adam Shankman who did Hairspray. Amazing. Who's amazing. We did John Travolta as um, Edna Turnblad for Hairspray. And, and Adam Shankman is a genius and, and anything musical, I mean, it's literally in his blood. He he's gonna do amazing things with it. Um I this I I feel like uh Bet Midler's special is sort of the all right, get off your butt and let's do this kind of moment. Totally. You know?
1: Yep. Yeah, I'm reading a headline right now. It says, they want to make a movie. They've asked us if we're interested. And of course, all of us said yes. Bette Midler. Myself and my mother will be absolutely ecstatic (laughs) once, once this gets the green light and actually moves ahead. Tony, I just want to thank you for being on this podcast. Hocus Pocus is a part of my life. My mother, when I was six years old, put this movie on for me. And every year since 1993, we have watched religiously. And it's a big part of my mom and I's relationship. It's our <laughs> we love Halloween because of Hocus Pocus. Um, and she dressed up like Winifred Sanderson one year. She
2: Oh, that's great. Yes, so
1: um big fans of you she's gonna freaking love this episode uh before we go i know this is like picking children but do you have a favorite project you've ever worked on
2: wow oh it's so hard because they're they're literally they're so different i know i feel like dark man was and hocus pocus were both experiences for me that were very unique where i was working with actors that i really liked dark man was liam neeson and a full head makeup and, a, and creating a whole character and collaborating on that. And then Billy Butcherson was Doug Jones and a whole character and collaborating on that. And then Karen Malkus coming into the mix. And everybody on both the shows was so much fun to work with uh, from the costume designer on down. So it's almost like you remember the whole experience as well as your piece of it. And I think those two are probably my favorites. But right behind that would be would be hairspray. I mean we we really put John Travolta through the ringer and he was amazing and positive and and just so much a part of what we were doing. It was it was very much the same experience as the other two. Um if I could put all three together, I'd say these it's this three-headed monster. These were the best, you know, hands down. But there's there's other experiences that are, are just as cool. Zombieland Uh, Woody Harrelson and Abigail Breslin and everybody made that experience a blast. You know, you're out in the cold at night at four in the morning, putting goo on a zombie and you're having fun doing it because you're enjoying the people that you're with. And that's kind of everything, you know,
1: what's next for you?
2: Oh, (laughs) we just finished a, a genre film that got shut down during COVID. We had a week left to shoot. We finally just shot that week's worth of stuff. It took two weeks to do with all the protocol to make sure everybody was safe now. And it's gonna be out next October, and it's a genre film with a lot of humor in it and a really great cast. It's totally under the radar, and I, I think that's gonna be really cool. And then we, we uh, did Bad Hair, which just came out online. Then we have another film coming out in November called Freaky which is a riff on Freaky Friday.
1: I've seen the previews. It, sound, it looks awesome with Vince Vaughn, right?
2: Yeah, it's great. It's, the, the concept is Freaky Friday the 13th, basically, which was the name of the script originally. But a serial killer and an unpopular girl in high school switch bodies. And there's a time limit before it's permanent. So the serial killer disguised as the girl now is trying to kill, just kill everybody. And... The girl who's now in Vince Vaughn's body is trying to convince her friends that she's who she says she is and go get her body back. So there's a lot of humor and it's it's really fun. I wish it had been able to come out in time for um for halloween uh but it'll it'll be out in a couple weeks friday the 13th of november actually
1: you have the best job tony where can everybody find you on social media or your website
2: um i am on instagram as tony gardner the shop is on instagram as alterian inc Uh, the shop's on facebook and twitter uh as, as the same thing there's a lot of um stuff going up from like Hocus Pocus and The Craft and Chucky and Army of Darkness, and even The Blob, anything that was like sort of genre Hollywood. It's like, let's pull out all the old photos and try and find stuff that people haven't seen before.
1: The Blob photos are incredible.
2: Oh, you, thanks.
1: Yeah, you just posted those, I think yesterday i was like damn uh go check out tony's instagram i'm gonna link to all of his his website instagram all that good stuff on the website and y'all know how to find gloss angeles on social media we're gloss angeles pod on instagram and twitter we're also on facebook just look up gloss angeles in the search bar and then our group will pop up join the group and of course you can access all of our episodes along with links to products and people at glossangelespod.com and we'll talk to you on tuesday